Known for his prolific output and incisive analysis on the culture war and broader struggle facing Europeans and Americans, the Z-Man lives close to Washington and knows all too well the insider nature of the power elite that rule over us. Tonight he joins us for a discussion of the great chain of causality, what to realistically strive for in a declining empire, and a way forward that brings more people together with a positive identity and a shared purpose. Well, I'm not a crook. I've earned everything I've got. A military-industrial complex. We are here to destroy the control over the industry of other people. I did not trade arms for hostages. It's been Hello and welcome to a very special myth of the 20th century. Uh, today we are honored by the uh, esteemed guest, uh, Z-Man, Mr. Z-Man. Not sure what uh, you prefer to be called by, but thanks so much for coming on. We have a full house. Uh, everybody by, by now should know all the co-hosts and myself, uh, but uh, Mr. Mr. Z-Man, thanks for coming on. How are you tonight? I'm very good. Thank you for having me on. I'm uh, a fan of you guys, so it's good to uh, finally get an opportunity to talk to you. Yeah, and uh, as I was just mentioning uh, right before we started, um, I was uh, thankfully introduced to you by Ethnarch uh, a while back, and it's been it's been a great run looking through some of your archives. I mean, Z-Man has an excellent daily blog, and it, this is something I have to point out because I'm a sort of part-time author myself in, in our circles, and it is an incredible commitment to do what he does, and he writes every day. So I would encourage everybody to first and foremost go to his blog, uh, the Zman.com, uh, I believe. Uh, and it's a, um, it's a fantastic archive of really just some meta-analysis of, I guess, the conservative right. You can call it you know whatever you want, the right in general. But he, he has a very long and, and good understanding of how this stuff works, and he's pretty close to the action. Uh, he's actually in Baltimore, which he colorfully calls Lagos on the Chesapeake. So why don't you tell us a little bit about uh, why you're there, uh, about your blog? Why did you start it, and uh, where, where do you think you'll be going uh, uh, from here? Well, it, it's, um, it's always a, kind of a funny story to tell because I, I don't, I'm not an academic. I never set out to be a political really in any way in terms of uh, political activity. I was always, uh, you know, on the right. I was always a race realist. I was always, I, I was a Buchananite back in the day. So, you know, I, I come from that kind of, you know, perspective, populist, nationalist, uh, race realist. And uh, I used to, I actually kind of gave up on politics, but what I would do is I'd go into the comment sections of conservative sites and just pick apart the, the, the crap that these guys would publish. And I, I got to know one of the, um, of the guys who was a moderator at national review. And he pointed out to me, he said, well, first of all, he says, every writer at national review cringes when you pop up in the comment section, cause they know it's going to be a bad day for them, <laughs> which I thought was amusing. But he, he also said, I, I pro more people probably came to the site to read my commentary than to read what was posted by national review. And he said, you know, I should just start doing my own thing. 
And I thought, you know what? That's pretty good advice. So um, I didn't really know what I wanted to do. I thought, what the heck? You know, like, it might be fun. It might be terrible. So I just started blogging and I didn't really know, you know, it wasn't really very good. And then, um, and then I, I don't know, something hit me. I, I just, it was one of those days and I ripped off something, you know, 1200 words. And all of a sudden I started getting emails from people saying, wow, this is a great idea. Why you should write more about this. And I thought, wow, maybe this is what I should do is write a, you know, this sort of short essay type stuff. And so I started doing that and, you know, you get better at it over time. And I know I've got it down to a pretty good, I don't know, half an hour in the morning, <laughs> something like that. Um, you know, it's like being a bricklayer. The, the more you do these right. things, they become natural to you. Do you and, do that um, to, to help your I mean, there's probably more than one answer here, but uh, I'm curious, you know, what, what your motivation is to do such a consistent uh, output. Uh, do you want to structure your thoughts? Do you want to actually interact with people? Because I, I think your comment section is actually one of the better places out there uh, for this type of material. And I, I frequently will go to the comments uh, very quickly after skimming your article if I don't read the whole thing because I enjoy the back and forth, which you're very active in as well. But I'm wondering, um, you know, what, what do you do it for? Like, what do you get out of it? Uh, do you want to, you know, network more? I've, I've noticed you've been doing more of that in real life as well. Uh, you know, it, it just kind of, I wound up, uh, you know, I've known John Derbyshire for a long time and, you know, it just, it just kind of, I, I suddenly realized that I, I can do something useful in something that doesn't really exist, dissident politics, you know, it, but it, it could exist and I could be a part of bringing it into existence. And, you know, that doesn't, you know, that doesn't happen very often in life. You know, you, you find yourself in just a moment, you know, in, in time that uh, is serendipity, of course. And, it, it, you know, one thing leads to another and it just kind of happens. And uh, I, I thought, you know what, I, I, I need to do, I need to take advantage of this. You know, the, the, you know what the important, my, I, uh, I'm tongue tied here, but for me, I, I deeply believe that either everyone can do something of value, something useful. And whatever that is you find that you can do and you can do well, if it needs being done well, then you have a duty to do it. And I do this well. <laughs> I found out I can do this well. And so I, I feel as if I have a duty to do it. And I know the correspondence I get, I mean, I get tons of mail now, tons of email. And the, I know there's lots and lots of people out there who, who are happy that they stumble across my site and they go, well, you know what? I'm not alone. You know, I'm not the only person thinking these things. Right. And then of course they find the comment section. They're like, holy smokes, there's all kinds of people out there. They, you know, it's not that, you know, that I have this uh, theology. I'm, I'm not starting a religion and I don't even have an ideology. It, it's just, you know, there's lots of people asking these same questions and I you know I'm, I'm, in a way I'm kind of creating my own cascade effect, I guess, you know, this sort of, uh, People come drift in, they realize, holy smokes, there's a lot of people who ask these same questions, who ponder the same things. And, uh, you know, they, they get caught up in, in dissident politics. So that, that's, a, that's a service that I think is, is needed. We need more people doing that. How was your, tr your recent trip? You mentioned you went to Denmark. Actually, I leave for Denmark tomorrow. Oh. So yeah, I'm going over for uh, the Skanza Forum, which um, uh, Frodi Midyord, he runs. It's, uh, you know, Scandinavian nationalism. Uh, it's um, you know, much like what you would see at American Renaissance or um, uh, any sort of dissident organizations, uh, like the like the uh, uh, AIM guys. Uh, well, what the heck is his name? Uh, oh, the Patrick American, Casey. Yeah, Patrick Casey. Those those kinds of things. And, and they're the Europeans are a little bit more. 
uh, esoteric, a little bit more academic uh, type. You know, it's just a different mm. cultural thing for them. And, uh, you know, Patrick Casey wants to do banner drops and that kind of thing. And, and that's fine. There's a place for that. Europeans, they, for, for starters, they, they <laughs> you can go to jail for doing that. So um, they have to be a little bit more prudent. But, uh, you know, they have this, these places where they get together, and that's what Scans is for. I was there last year. Uh, I've gotten to know Frody and a bunch of this, these people. Uh, I was in Finland last year for uh, the Finnish uh, nationalist event. Right. So, um, you know, and I'll be in Germany, I think, next month for a German nationalist uh, meeting. So and I'm becoming a part of that scene. And I have a lot of readers from over there. A surprising number of readers and listeners. Uh, listeners is really the surprising one. Uh, there's a, some Finns translate my stuff into Finnish. Uh, there's a guy who does it into Swedish. So it's, uh, you know, I, I'm, I'm becoming the, uh, an international dissident. Oh, good for you. Uh, well, I, I guess we could jump in maybe to uh, the first section of where I'd, I'd like to introduce people to your your worldview. Uh, and then maybe you can kind of weave in some of the, the stuff that's going on in Europe, since that's kind of an interesting icebreaker. Um, but one of the things that I really like about your writing is that you seem to have a very strong focus on the culture war. You think that's really the, the beginning of where we as white people uh, should be focused on. Now, actually implicit in that statement is the beginning of your, what you call the chain of causality, which uh, I'll summarize briefly as starting with, get the biology right, then you can get the culture right, then you can get the politics right, and then maybe the economics after that, but in that order. And that, that's, that seems to be the, the, the crux of what you're trying to get white people to focus on. Uh, so do you want to maybe talk about how that works in America, maybe contrast it a little bit with uh, Europe perhaps, but I thought, um, I thought that'd be an interesting place to start. Yeah, it's an idea actually that I picked up from reading uh, Joseph de Mastry. He's the old uh, French reactionary who uh, was a, a really very interesting guy, uh, a monarchist, you know, and you know that kind of thing. You know, uh, most of his focus was um, what the, the consequences are of the French Revolution. But one of the things he pointed out is that culture is is what it is is a shared reality. It's this. It's like a miasma. You know, this this, this thing that we're all in. And we can't see it, we can't feel it, we can't touch it, but we know it. You know, we we recognize it when we go away and come back. And, of course, he, he saw this as an exile, leaving his home, living in exile, a lot of other exiles. And then, you know, they, they could have this uh, perspective that they, they didn't have when they were living in France and, and, and uh, in their homeland. So it, it's that sense that culture is this shared reality, but that it's a shared reality that has to be rooted in biology because anyone who's been around uh, people who are not like them, you, you see right away that they, they live in a different space than you. And that, that is that cultural space. And, and particularly in a country like America where you have lots of diversity and look, I live in um, Baltimore for goodness sakes. And, uh, you know, I have, I've been around, I've been around a lot of, a lot of places and seen a lot of things. And, and you know, you don't have to leave America to notice that, that we don't have a unified culture. We have sort of a high culture that's imposed on us by our progressive ruling class, but ultimately we don't have a unified culture. We never did because we're not a unified people. The, the, the people who live in say the deep South, they come from different parts of England. Originally they were, they brought it with them a different sense of identity there were different people than say the tidewater where, you know, from the North Carolina into Virginia and, and, and parts of Maryland. 
And of course, they were completely different than people from Appalachia. They came from different parts of England. You can trace this stuff back. And of course, as these people flowed out of the East Coast across the country, they took their culture with them because they took their biology with them. There's uh, 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 towns in Ohio that vote exact to this day, vote the exact same way as towns in, since, uh, in Connecticut from where the original people came from. <laughs> That's how <laughs> strong biology is. And it's this, you know, if you get that biology right, and I say get it right, you know, in a case like with, for us as uh, dissidents, our argument is it's not that we hate other people or that our happiness is somehow contingent on the suffering of others. It's that you know, people want to be around people who are like themselves. I see this every day in Baltimore. Black people don't like being around white people. I mean, in small doses, yeah, sure. But on a daily basis, oh, they hate it. They like being around their own kind. And, of course, whites are the same way. But, you know, accepting that and understanding it is the first kind of step in, in, in getting our culture right. If we're going to remain a country, it's always going to have to have to be as originally designed, and that is a loose federation of cultures mm -hmm. and people that simply agreed to, hey, the big stuff we'll, we'll work together on, but otherwise we have to take care of our own problems. And, and then, you know, cause like, you know, after all, you, you could see this at work in Europe. You know, the Swedes for a long time were able to make socialism work pretty well. Well, guess what? If you read up on the Vikings, they had socialism before it was a word. They, they, that, that sharing culture, the sort of flat egalitarian society, well, that, that, that was a part of who those people were in the North long before we had we, before we had the word Viking, before they started pouring out into Europe, it was just a part of who they were. And they made socialism work. We've never been able to make socialism work in the United States. It's always been a mess. It's always just opened the door for all sorts of chicanery and economic piracy. And, and that's because, well, we don't have the same kind of people. We can't make that work. So that's why economics and even political structures, it's all downstream. You know, get the people right. You get the culture right. That's an important thing to figure out first. You know, you know, here we are as a people, but who are we going to be as a people? What are we going to, you know, strive for? What are we going to dream about? What do we, what are we going to bequeath to our, our, our descendants? Once you get that straightened out, the rest of this stuff is going to come naturally. And the proof of that, of course, is if you read the history of the United States, the the colonies and the original founding. I mean, it, it you when you understand that the first two hundred years or one hundred and fifty years or whatever of North American history makes complete sense. I mean, Patrick Buchanan wrote about this 30 years ago, so it's not like I'm the first guy thinking of this. I have a few more questions, but uh, I want to let my co-host jump in here. Do you guys have any thoughts? It's interesting the, the kind of way that the U.S. has this process of fake ethnogenesis, or I, I, don't, I really don't want to say fake, but it's, it's a very unique process where there's sort of this historic myth that the U.S. is all one people, but that's just plainly not the case uh, when you look at the various waves, even of European immigration. Like, Irish immigration completely changed the culture of the United States. It dramatically moved uh, politics uh, to the left. I mean, even beyond that, in kind of a more meta level, the idea that you're going to admit women uh, to your polity or that you're going to admit blacks that had you know, always been here since the formation of the country uh, to the polity, like th these are fundamentally like reconstitutions of what it means to be American. 
and now you have kind of this uh, this conscious uh, process um, where there's kind of an imposed fragmentation. And you have contrasted with this this kind of uh, metaphysical idea of Americanness. And I I know that this kind of opens up a uh, a uh, a can of worms. Um, is probably you know could be a very large discussion. But I'm wondering since you brought it up, and since I know that this has kind of been an aspect of your thinking, what you think about the kind of notion of a American identity. I, I really don't think there is one. I mean, you know, it's one of those things, you know, you, America, the best you could think that you could say about America, I think the, if you're going to try and make the argument that there is American, an American identity, it's that is uh, America is this big, sprawling, continental wide extended family. And, you know, there's a, a very small number of things that kind of hold us not together, but they kind of, we all kind of accept just weird little features and, uh, but you know, the, the, the more regional you get, you know, you start to drill down, then, then you start to see more and more similarities of the people, but even within regions, there's diversity. I mean, in the South, you know, anyone who's lived in the South and I have, you immediately understand the differences between black and white culture. It's a thing that everybody knows. They don't even talk about it because they don't have to. It's like no one talks about gravity or, uh, the fact that, you know, it, it, the sun comes up in the, in the East and sets in the West. They don't talk about this huge cultural gap between blacks and whites because what would be the point? And so the, this, you know, with this, as you talk about the, the sort of synthetic Americanism that's kind of promoted to us and, you know, these principles we keep hearing about all the time, you know, or our democracy, you know, the, it's funny, they, they all, they, our ruling class, both sides of it have a, a set of buzzwords, you know, the left talks about our democracy as if it's a, a God we worship and the right, what passes for the right, you know, talks about principles all the time. Oh, our, our, you know, constitutional principles, our democratic principles, whatever it might be. But really what they're talking about is a set of rules they're imposing upon us that benefit them more often than not at the expense of the rest of us. And that's because principles and, um, in general are about, uh, you know, the rules that the winners put in place to, uh, consolidate their victory. And, you know, we're, we're a country that has been ruled by, you know, Yankeedom since Gettysburg. Uh, it's still the case. I mean, I think a lot of the ruck ructions that we have going on, in modern day America are about as much as anything, the rest of the country trying to get a say in how things are going to be run. And our political system doesn't allow for that. It's, you know, we have a bipartisan uniparty, you know, sort of a single party that largely is, you know, progressive, you know, could be described as progressive as a right face to it and a left face, but you know, there's no, they can't allow the rest of us in. And so that, that's, that's, that's why we have all this, this turmoil, but no, I don't, I don't think I would never argue that there's an American identity beyond some rather superficial things. You know, we like, um, uh, you know, we like to eat a lot. Or, you know, well, or, that, you know. That's interesting because that's kind of, um, you know, it's not quite a lefty talking point. Um, but it's not quite not the idea that, uh, American identity is constructed by a, uh, political power elite for their own, uh, purposes. Um, I mean, that, that kind of seems to clash with the, uh, the construction, uh, even like the, uh, the construction in opposition, like there's, there obviously is like an entity, the white American. And we know this because it's a target for political suppression. Uh, so, I mean, that, that has to exist as some sort of a metaphysical 
object. It doesn't suffice to say that, uh, you know, we have these Irish and Italians and they're frozen out of the political system. They enter into the political system via uh, machine politics and then they just kind of get subsumed into this larger deep state thing. That doesn't really capture kind of the the essence of well, they exist as a coherent category, at least as a thing that you can extract resources from as a as a coherent category. Well, I, I suppose um, if I understand what you're what you're saying is that you know the 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 idea that uh, get back to the first part that you know the left wing sort of you know argument that hey. Uh, you know, power is about people exerting authority over others. That's that's what it is. And and, and no one, you know, this idea of consensual government is, a, a, you know, when I was a young guy, that the, the criticism from the left would be that's that's a fraud. You know, it's really big corporations or special interests or whatever it might be, and 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 democracy and the party system and all that stuff was just a charade to keep us busy. And they were they weren't entirely wrong about that, but. But yeah, I mean, I, I think fundamentally there's a very small number of people who actually run the United States. I mean, it's not a hard thing to do. And, you know, I spent a lot of time in Washington and it's, it's you know, it's a country of 350 million people. And really there's, I don't know, maybe 10,000 people who actually have real influence over policy. I mean, it's a small, <laughs> it's a small club. Well, you like and, to call uh, them uh, the cloud people. Yeah, I mean, you go into Washington and and you you get around these people, and they they are different than the rest of us. They live different lives. They, uh, you know, it's interesting in a way. They live like white nationalists, which I always find amusing. You know, um, you know, they, if you look at where they live, and I've walked in these neighborhoods, and 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 really, if you you know look at just how they organize their lives, they it's the old uh, Joe Sobrin line. Uh, he said something along the lines of you know, in the uh, migratory and mating habits, progressives look like the Ku Klux Klan. And that's that's it was true fifty years ago when he said it. And it's true now, and um, but but you know as far as you know that that power structure, it's, it's it, a big part of maintaining power is maintaining the myth of how you uh, uh, how you attained power. I mean, every ruling class, whether it's the guys in charge of the company or the people in charge of a country, they have to have a creation myth. They have to have this. Hey, this is our beginning, and the story of our beginning justifies our our continued position in authority it, it, it always it's a universal has to exist and if you look you know like the rewriting of american history no one learns about i always use the hartford convention as a great example you know what they learn about the 19th century is that these really good honest people in the north decided that slavery had to some we had to do something about it and those dastardly southerners decided they were they were going to keep their slaves you know I mean, it's a cartoon version of history in reality, the the uh, New England states they wanted to uh, secede in before the War of eighteen twelve. They 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 had had enough because they felt as if they were being dominated by Virginia. So again, this cultural rivalry. Now they managed to win. So guess what? They rewrote history. You know, we don't. You you. When I was a kid, they had this thing called Schoolhouse Rock, where you learned about the the Pilgrims. You never learned about Jamestown. You learned about Plymouth Rock. You know, because the victors are going to tell their story. And it's this, you know, Yankeedom that has dominated America, and and it's not just Yankeedom now. I call it the uh, Judeo-Puritan ruling class because in the 20th century, Jews began to filter into the ruling class. They were brought in. They brought a lot of their cultural habits, their legalism, um, and, and and of course, a necessity to de-Christianize the country because it would it couldn't possibly work. Uh, you know, in a Christian country being ruled by by Jews, it's you know, Syria tries that with the Alawites and. Um, 
so, I mean, it, you know, but this ruling elite does evolve and it has in the 20th century. It may be evolving now. I don't know. But, but yeah, I mean, I, I, to your original point, yes, I would, I would, uh, I would, comp- I would argue and I would point out that it is a small club that rules over us and, and they, they live an entirely different life than the rest of us. And, and they're strangely divorced from the rest of us. They really don't know right. what we talk about. You know, they, it's a, it's a, it's a funny thing. If you read about the French revolution, one of the really cool things that I think is it's kind of imagine, you know, read the only, read about the French revolution only like read only about one side and then only about the other. And then it makes a lot more sense because these were guys operating black boxes. The others, one side didn't really have any idea what was going on inside the other side. And, and we have that going on today, which is, uh, I think is kind of interesting. I, I, I kind of started rambling there. So I, if I missed something else you asked well, me. About. I always I always like to bring it back to um, kind of I I don't want to elevate them by the term mainstream, but uh, people that you can s- cite in polite company and uh, a political scientist by the name of uh, Bruce Bueno de Mesquita has a very uh, interesting kind of model of political affairs where he essentially refers to the ten thousand or so people that matter. Uh, as uh, the selectorate. And it's essentially the people that form the immediate governing coalition of whoever's in charge. And that can be, if you know, your military or security state elites, it's your major, uh, your major economic players, your donors, uh, high-level civil servants, uh, people who know people, etc. It's a little bit ill-defined as a class. But he makes the point that if you're modeling a country's politics, you really only need to look at the interests of that group of people that comprises the plausible people that your ruling elite can make allies as they try to achieve their political goals. And I think that's a very important point if you're going to try to understand what's going on. Well, it it certainly drives where our public policy goes. There was a study, I think it was either from Yale or Princeton, I can't remember off the top of my head, but they basically did a very thorough survey of uh, opinions of the the donor class and then they compared them to the the general public at large and they correlated actual policy changes uh, between the two groups uh, and they basically found there was zero correlation between what people in the mass public wanted and there was a very strong correlation between the donor class which would probably you know fit into that 10,000 people or even less uh, of where actually the, the country's policy went. Um, and I had one more comment. Uh, there was a uh, there was a very good uh, podcast you did recently, Z Man, uh, where you're describing this uh, woman somewhere in New England. She was a professor, and she was, I think, giving lectures about uh, diversity to some degree or another. And what you you pointed out was that she lived as a white nationalist would desire to. Uh, just in a way that uh, most white nationalists couldn't afford because she's a college professor. And so she lives in basically uh, Vermont or wherever it was, and which is 95% roughly white. Uh, she lives in a very posh uh, town, as most college towns are. And uh, this this is sort of, again, getting to the out-of-touch nature of who these people are. And I think that's why you call them cloud people, because they're not down-to-earth. They're not connected to the people they ostensibly feel above uh so i just wanted to to give that yeah i actually i I enjoyed that segment quite a bit (laughs) really yeah you know what look i'm not gonna lie i do every once in a while like ripping somebody i i actually i I don't do it anymore because i kind of feel sorry for him but i used to to, uh, beat up on kevin williamson all the time 
and uh, it's like I'm I'm uh, I'm human like everyone else. I have my vices, and 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 giving uh, someone the business is, brings me pleasure. And and I got a, a quite a few emails from people. Apparently, I, I don't want to say they were at Dartmouth, but they are familiar with the area. <laughs> and uh, and I got it wrong. I said it was in Vermont. I don't know why. I used to live in New Hampshire, and I you'd think I would know this, but it's right on the border. And but New Hampshire is super white as well. And, uh, it, it, and they, they were howling. I mean, these people were laughing because they're like, yeah, you know, we, we noticed this too. And, and Dartmouth's a fairly conservative for an Ivy league college, but you know, it, it, you go on to these places and, and you really see it like, you know, I had a friend who was at Yale a few years back and I would go up and visit him. I'd, I'd stay in, in the graduate dorms and <laughs> it was, it was like being a, I, I called it an adult daycare center because that's really why it functioned. These people were not adults. They mm-hmm. didn't act like adults. But now, but they have enormous power, though. I mean, that's an important piece to, to, to keep in mind. And, and here in Washington, there are specific neighborhoods. You can tell by where somebody lives exactly on what node of the power structure they are. You know, if they're uh, in the commentariat, they're going to live in, in like Chevy Chase Village, which is in Montgomery County. I mean, these are beautiful homes. Uh, senior um, uh, administrative people, you know, that are uh, appointees, but... You know they're kind of career appointees. They, you know, they're, they're sort of supposedly nonpartisan, but they're all on the left, of course. Uh, Lois Lerner, for example, lived in Bethesda, and uh, she uh, she was the IRS tax woman who got in trouble for uh, going after right wing groups. But uh, but now if if you're in Georgetown, well, that's a that's a, a higher up, that's core ruling class. Northern Virginia, well, it's kind of like the the West Virginia of the ruling class, and and you know it's just these different neighborhoods. You can you can tell a lot about how much stroke the person has based on where they live. And uh, Tucker Carlson's talked about this. He lives in a swank part of Washington, D.C., in the district. He's talked about how great it is. You know, it's it's like 1950s America. Mm-hmm. And and the, the key, though, is is that the deals that get made, and this is what, like, Trump is running into, is that the deals that get made, how policies formulated, it's not in public view. It's at the Starbucks. It's at dinner parties. It's at lunch. It, all these people, this this collection of people, this sort of semi-permanent ruling class, they're basically just uh, for hire. You know, imagine, you know, you start a uh, say a sports league, and all the players are in a pool, and the owners buy in, and they rent players for a season, and then if they don't have any money, well, then some new owner comes in and he rents the team. You know, there's their input into you know the donor class is really in a way filtered through these people. So they, they have enormous amount of power just on a sort of informal ad hoc basis. The same thing happens in wall street. If you drive through Connecticut, you'll see some amazing towns. Absolutely amazing. And that's where like, um, on the gold coast, that's where all the, um, uh, not the VC guys, the, uh, Oh God, what are they called? Um, hedge fund. Yeah. The hedge fund guys. And, but that's because, you know, you can go out to dinner with someone in your neighborhood and cut an insider deal. Mm-hmm. Nobody's going to be able to catch you. It's impossible. But if you do that crap at the office and sending emails back and forth, well, now you got a paper trail. Mm-hmm. So if we all live in the same neighborhood, well, then we can all get together and agree upon how we're going to run things. And that's that's how Washington works. It's mm-hmm. it's a it's a small town in charge of a vast empire. That's how every office works. You, you know, there's a reason that they <laughs> play up politics. the importance yeah. of those uh, those hallway conversations. Like this, this is fractal. Like this is a thing that I like to say: the power is fractal. You can understand its operation at the macro scale by understanding how you get some shit done at the muffler shop. <laughs> <laughs> 
Yeah, it's a, it's a, when you get into a room with these, like I was down at the American, I forget what he called this thing, National Conservatism or whatever, the Yoram Hazoni thing. And there was a lot of big shots in that in that room. And watching the the dynamics of it, it it was it, it was a great reminder. I mean, I'm I obviously kind of familiar with this stuff anyway, but it, it to see it in such living color, it was really quite amusing. And it, but you also get to see how certain people are presented or present themselves as as important when in fact they're just nobodies. You know, they're just just hangers on, and uh, you know, and they're never going to be somebody. You know, they're just decorations. They come and they go particularly the younger people, younger women, a lot of them. And uh, it, it's just the reality of, of how it works. And, and look, it's a way all society works. You know, I'm, I'm a, you know, I'm, I come at my politics from the right because I'm a biological realist. I understand how humans naturally organize themselves. There's going to be an higher hierarchy and there's going to be somebody in charge. You know, the big problem we have in our political system in America is we don't really have a defined role for the natural elite. Uh, you know, we should have a... a a chamber of Congress for billionaires. If, if you want to be a billionaire and you become a billionaire, then you have to serve in this chamber as a, you know, like the house of Lords. If you refuse, then we take enough of your money. So you're no longer a billionaire. <laughs> it's your choice. You know? <laughs> Cause then we would know, Oh geez, we want this thing. And the billionaires would say, no, we're not going to give that to you. Well, oh, okay. All right. You know, <laughs> That's, that, and, and, and it's amazing. It, it sounds crazy, but people would accept it. I mean, they did for thousands of years, but it, it, I don't really – I don't think there, anyone can complain about there being a ruling elite. The problem is our ruling elite is completely rotten. It is rotten to the core, and I don't think it's reformable. I think it's going to take some real huge crisis, a, an existential crisis, where they they worry that perhaps uh, their existence is in, in jeopardy. And then something might happen. Might Something bad might happen, but then something will happen. Well, I, have, I have lots of questions about this strategy. Question, but Yeah, go ahead, Nick. Uh, so – I'd like to ask you, man, if you wouldn't mind talking briefly about that National Conservatism Conference and whether or not you saw when you were there any kind of serious dissension from the Zionist conservative consensus. Well, it was a, it was a, I had a lot of fun, actually. Um, it, you, it's important to en- enjoy your life. And uh, I always say life is for living. You know, you don't want to. You don't want to get to the end and say, ah, geez, you know, I wish I wouldn't have been such a stick in the mud. And um, <laughs> so it was a, it was an entertaining thing. I, I read and I reviewed Hazani's book. And as I pointed out, Hazani is a, an ethno-nationalist. He's unabashedly ethno-nationalist. Every once in a while he catches himself and realizes it and he starts doing a weird, you know, uh, dance where they flap their arms around and start hooting about racism. But but by and large, he is he, his book, if you, if you replace Zionism with white, it's Greg Johnson's book. I mean, it's 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 all the same stuff, and uh, and and it's funny. Uh, he doesn't really see that. It, it, uh, Jews are strangely uh, lacking in self awareness. It's like a cult. You know, people who are in a cult, they have, they don't say, "Hey, I'm in a cult." They don't realize it. You know, and that's because when you have this strong over uh, overarching identity, it it, it you know you, it's appealing because. You know, you don't like yourself. You know, you trade your yourself for the identity of the group. You know, it's a form of, you know, self-abnegation. And I think that's just a, a characteristic of being Jewish, particularly a Zionist. And uh, so he he can't see that he's basically just a, 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 an ethno-nationalist. But putting that aside, I got into the thing because some of the speakers are readers of mine and they, they pressured him to let me in. I doubt if I'll ever be invited in again. But um, there were a lot of men with little hats. Um, they were everywhere. They were like aphids. And, um, but there was a lot of dissonance in the room. 
I wish I had a nickel for every time someone walked up to me and said, Hey, I heard you were here. I, I, I wanted to you know, tell you that I'm a big fan. It was really, it was quite remarkable. And, uh, you know, and I found out, you know, that there's lots of dissident groups that operate in Washington, uh, you know, underground sort of dinner club type things. Um, there's one that actually every Friday they get together and listen to my podcast. So, <laughs> so um, and you know, they listen to other people and, you know, they, they have a active, you know, radio groups and, and talking groups. So, uh, that was really quite enlightening. Uh, but as far as, you know, the, it's really is quite remarkable how they peddle this idea that to be an American means to be selflessly engaged in supporting Israel. It's a very strange thing to, to, to do. And, and, and I, I, it, it put a lot of effort into it. It's very important to them. Um, and you could see that at the conference, this, that whole thing was about, I, I'm fairly sure it was probably financed by uh, the Israelis to some degree. I know Peter Thiel uh, financed a big chunk of it, but I, I got to believe that the Israelis were behind it. And, and look, I'm, I'm not an anti-Semite. I, I, I'm, I'm, I'm candid about my views on, on people, but I'm not, I'm not a guy who hates Jews or hates blacks or hates anybody really for, for that matter. Um, so, you know, uh, I, but it, it was definitely a super duper Zionist event. Has it always been like this? I mean, uh, Nick Quintus tried to get into one of uh, these events. I think it was CPAC and, and for the brief moment he was in there before they threw him out, he was just wandering around booth to booth and they all had like stars of David and, you know, why we should be involved in this, the 10th war for Israel. And it was just like, it was this monopoly of messaging that I don't think it was, was the case, uh, even in the 80s. I mean, you, you started to see the signs with the Reagan administration uh, and the cabinet that he had in, in there, but it was uh, it was much more obviously with Bush and, and his son. Uh, and so um, what happened to conservatives? I mean, I, I, you made me chuckle uh, a while back when I read this in one of your blogs, but you said conservatives are the only political movement to have their team picture in front of an empty trophy case. <laughs> so I don't know if you can explain what, what happened to these guys, but I, I, my contention is that it wasn't always like this. And, you know, Buckley, yes, he had, he had some pro-Zionist views, but there seemed to be some other things that they at least tried to talk about besides just this. So what happened? Yeah. Yeah. I, you know, I think, um, I, I think in all honesty, I, I think, and I, I have a lot of Jewish readers and listeners and, you know, I've, I've talked about this endlessly and, and it's, it's, it's amusing in a way and that, uh, I can be in a room and have a conversation with a, a Semite, a Philo Semite and an anti-Semite all at the same time. Hmm. Um, and, and I, I think because a lot of uh, like the alt Jews, there's a very conservative wing of Jews. They're, they're fully aware of, uh, you know, what, how, uh, Gentiles see Jews. They, they get that, you know, they're, they're just this exceptional group. But I, I think what's happened is that being pro-Israel is the only acceptable way of for white people to be ethnically aware, to be ethnically hmm. positive. You you can if it's I certainly anti-Muslim. I mean, you get that yeah. sort of given to you for free in America as opposed to in Europe. So if if you want to get some people out, at least you can do that. It seems maybe that's what you're if, getting at. If if you're a white guy, the only brown people you can actively hate are Muslims, mm -hmm. and the only white people you can actually cheer for or Jews. You see, I mean, it's really what, what, it, what it became is that you can't say, Hey, I don't want to live next to a black guy, but you can say, I don't want to live next to a Muslim. So it, it's, I think it's just, uh, has become sort of this outlet for, for white people. Libertarianism used to work this way too. Uh, libertarianism, I mean, like Ron Paul libertarianism, they, 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 Ron Paul libertarians are full of races basically. I mean, I wouldn't say that was all they were, but 
you know, privately, all those guys fully were on board Most with the of idea came of. From there. As yeah, sure you're aware. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, it, it, you know, it's, it's the old uh, alt right line that uh, libertarianism is implicit whiteness. You know, mm-hmm. and and I think the same thing happens. Is although I don't think I think it's running its course because it's so cartoonish and absurd. Um, that guy uh, Charlie Kirk yeah. running around with a oh, beanie God. on his head, that and terrible. and uh, and I think Ben Shapiro has actually done. He's done more. He's done yeoman's work for anti semitism. Right. right. <laughs> I mean, and uh, so I think. And, and I think that I'm and his sister. Just wanted to uh, you know, I, I don't. Yeah, I don't know a lot about. That. <laughs> I think that's the uh, the ironic philo-Semitism right. that uh, his sister cultivates. <laughs> Sorry, <laughs> I don't know if you've seen the picture of her in the living room without her shirt on, but that leaked uh, about a year ago. Oh. So yeah, yeah. yeah it's a yeah, very see, comely I, sister. It's it's funny with these guys. I, I think you know, honestly, you know, they're not making Jews like they used to. You know, I I think I wrote a post at one point pointing out that you know John Poderitz couldn't hold a candle, couldn't hold his father's jock. Yeah, his father was a smart guy. Same with Crystal. John Poderitz a doofus. Um, Bill Crystal is just a smarmy jerk off. I mean, he's yeah. just an unpleasant person, and and, and no one likes him. Uh, well, this is something that, that Ron Unz is objectively uh, quantified uh, to the extent that you're willing to kind of believe in his uh, assumptions about correlations. But he, he documents pretty extensively uh, things like uh, uh, Jewish surnames in the, uh, the National Merit uh, Scholarship categories, uh, admissions to various universities cross-correlated with their various uh, objective SAT scores. Like there, there seems to be a uh, severe uh, kind of elite overproduction in that uh, that particular uh, ethnic circle. Yeah, I, I think it, there's a couple things. Out marriage for sure is is harmed a little bit. Um, you know, there's a boiling off of people who are more willing to question the motives of the group. You know, you see this with the Amish, um, but there's also uh, there's a audacious epigone. Mm-hmm. Has done some posts on this as well. There, there's actually quant, you know, there's some good, there's some good data on this, and it, it's not um, it's not surprising in a way. I mean, we know this uh, that the that there's certain um, processes can drive up the overall IQ of a group of people, and but at some point when those restraints are are freed, the you know the breeders equation kicks in, and you guess what? We start to revert to the mean, and and you know there's. It's happening with whites. Whites are getting dumber. So there's really strong evidence of that. And I, I think with Jews, though, you know, when you it's one of those things. Um, the black IQ is not falling very fast because you don't. I mean, where's it going to go? It, 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 it. You know, it's, I mean, I don't mean to be rude, but that's just true. But when you're you're clocking in at 115, well, it only takes a generation or two before the average drop to 106. <laughs> I mean, it, it's just basic math, and. You know that I think that's that's to a great degree what's happening, and and it's one of those things, it, you know. And I've, well, I've they're they're outbreeding. This. I think that's part of it too. And blacks, you know, if they outbreed, they'll probably raise their IQ. And so I think those those factors are driving the changes to the mean, is what you're basically describing. And I, and I think Jews have another problem, and that is they built this wonderful in you know uh, early you know World War Two uh, era through the middle of the century. They built this really complex and beautiful machine to kind of uh, insinuate themselves in, in, in our family tree, so to mm-hmm, speak. Mm-hmm. Judeo-Christian, and, yeah. Yeah, but it's it's so complicated that you've got to be uh, have a lot of high IQ people to make it work. Right. And they're running short of those guys. 
and and things are starting to break apart. And you know, I, I, the analogy is you go into uh, Newark, you go into Detroit, you go into Baltimore. Well, the the infrastructure that makes these cities work was built by people that are no longer there, and it's now being run by people who never could have built it in the first place. Mm-hmm. And so, no matter how much help they get, slowly things start to degrade. It, it's it's the Romans. At some point, you know, there were people who knew how to fix the aqueducts and knew why they were there and, and knew the, the science behind them. And then there were people that knew how to fix them, but they didn't really understand why they were built that way. And then eventually there were people who didn't know how to fix them. <laughs> and then there were yeah. people who didn't know why they were there in the first place. Mm-hmm. And I think that's The happening. center cannot hold. Yeah, I think that's what's happening with Jews in America. Because, I mean, think about it. Jews were 3.3% of the population at the end of World War II, give or take. Well, they're 1.7 now, something like that. And of course, it's a self-identified Jews. So there's a lot of, you know, a lot of, a lot of guys who are identifying as Jewish because, hey, you know, they get to tell the jokes, and, but you know, they're marginally Jewish. So uh, yeah, yeah, I, I'm again, I'm not an anti-Semite, and and I think, and I've I've, I've had these conversations with anti-Semites. I always tell them, yeah, odds are, by the time I blink my last blink, the Jewish question will have answered itself. What are your, uh, just to do a slight detour, but to get through the, I, I want people to have a, a clear understanding of your worldview. Uh, so I, I just wanted to get through some of the, the core axioms here. What are your thoughts on women and women in politics and women in society in general? Well, I don't think women should be in politics at all. Um, I mean, look, you know, a hammer is a very useful tool and it's, it's, you can't, you can't, you can't be a workman without a hammer. But you don't use it for everything, mm-hmm. and if society has to have has to have women, you know, it's obviously, obvious, you know? obviously, of course, right? But but, but women, their, their primary role from a biological perspective, and in every culture that has had any sort of run, is that women are the are the ovens that bake the bread, but they're mm-hmm. also the this uh, mortar that holds society together. It's women that these micro social institutions, the, the the neighborhood, the town, the village, they hold all the stuff together. I, mean, I don't know how old you guys are. But I'm old enough to remember when a lot of women were stay-at-home moms. And what did they do? They volunteered at the school. They volunteered at the church. Mm-hmm. They put together events. Dad came home. He didn't have to think about any of that crap. He just showed up and did his thing. You know, he was, you know, told they managed the home. And women, girls would go to school for home economics to learn how to properly run a home. It, that's an important function. And and it's been, you know, what's happened is that you know the 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 uh, financialization of 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 society has said, hey, we're going to take that social capital, mm-hmm. and we're going to financialize it by putting the women into cubicles and and workplaces and so forth, and you're going to have to you know pay for the, the stuff that they would normally do. So I, I mean, I, I and I think women in politics is a pretty good. It, every woman in politics is unhappy. They're always unhappy. I mean, that, that's a that's a sign. You know, you know. I mean, so I I would. If I were uh, made king, I mean, well, look, before I got to that, if I were king, I would do a lot of other things. But, um, but you know, women not only should not be in politics, they should be strongly discouraged from working. And I would also say that women shouldn't vote. I think voting should be a household thing. Vote, voting should be yeah, family, family vote, yeah, yeah mm-hmm. family vote. I mean, and, and that's that's so obvious. You know, I mean, yeah. the people who have a stake in the future should be the ones who who have the say. You know. Yeah, some people say that about people who own property have a similar incentive. But I, I agree with more of what your your point of view on that is. Uh, one of the quotes you said about women was, if you want to destroy people, put their women to work. Yeah, and, absolutely. I mean, that's what slavery was. When we brought black slaves into the, the new world, we, we didn't set the women up as homemakers. We put them to work. You know, we don't want these people having an identity. We don't want to have them a sense of, of uh, a community or anything. Else. They, were, they were farm equipment. That's mm-hmm. what they were used as. Mm-hmm. I mean, in America, they were treated 
much better than, say, South America. You know, in the American South, slaves were, no, nobody wants to be a slave, but they were treated better and had better lives. They lived longer. They were healthier than they were in Africa. The the Portuguese were notorious for being brutal people to their colonies, at least. Um, So I think that explains a lot of Brazilian uh, horror stories, perhaps. Um, But that's just a side note. But as far as, you know, women, I mean, I, I mean, I'm, I find it monstrous when you see these, there's a TV commercial. I don't watch a lot of television, so I, you know, this could have been on, or could be off now, but it's this like girl, she's doing something and then it, it kind of evolves. You see her evolving and then she's uh, in a Marine outfit. I mean, she's like, it's a pixie for goodness sakes. And she's holding, you know, a, an M16 and she's in a, in a, a battlefield. And I'm thinking, yeah, what horrible. monster? What monster sends their girls oh, into no. combat? I, mean, I, I was actually, uh, this was right at the beginning of, I think, the Iraq War. It was certainly after 9-11. And I remember um, I was visiting my grandmother and the television was on and they were, it was probably the news. And they, they basically had a shot of uh, some platoon or, or, or squad of, of soldiers. And there was a woman uh, in combat fatigues out, out you know, in front of the cameras in a combat zone or at least close to a combat setting. I can't remember exactly if they had allowed women to be in combat at that point, but I remember my grandmother basically saying, and she grew up in the depression and so that was her generation. But I mean, she, she basically just said, and I was too young to understand, but she said basically like, this is horrible. You know, I, I don't want to see a you know, young woman out there you know, doing that. Oh yeah. I mean, it's, it's, it's looking, you know, no one would want their sons to be in combat. I mean, look, when you're a young guy, you know, the adventure of it and all that stuff. And, and, and anyone, however, has been in a life threatening situation knows it's not really something you want to do twice. Yeah. It's a hell of an adrenaline kick and, and all that stuff. And, you know, fine. But women don't have any experience with that. They don't, they're not built for it. Women and men and women are different. And, and it's an important difference. We would not be here as a species mm-hmm. if not for these cognitive differences between boys and girls. And, uh, it, it but it, I, I think, to some degree that the lunacy of howling about sexism and stuff, I, that kind of brings me some pleasure in a way because you know, they're discredited. The people promoting that are discrediting themselves. You, you, there's, there's a limit as to what you can convince people of. And the Soviets ran into this, the mm-hmm. communist Chinese ran into this. And I think we're running into it now. So well, I'll tell you, I remember very specifically one of the big things that made me flip, flip the script over and basically just question the entire, you know, urban lifestyle I was living was when Bruce Jenner became front and center of every award show for basically self mutilating. I, I, I just, <laughs> I just could not understand what was wrong with society. And then it led me down to the path for questioning and trying to answer that question. But it was, um, it was a huge visceral thing that, I mean, it, I think we're seeing this like tranny story time. I mean, th- there's a limit to this stuff. And that's actually one other question I had for you quantitatively. I don't know if you can even put a number on this. It's a hard thing to do, but, there's a tipping point where people do start waking up, whatever you want to call it, to notice things. And a lot of us, at least myself, uh, were, not, were not so political uh, a while back. I mean, I was more focused on my career and education and, and what you're supposed to do as a normal American, I guess. But um, I, and I, I sort of saw politics as interesting, but I never saw it fundamental. And unfortunately, and I, I say that with sincerity, I don't want to be living my life constantly obsessed with race and what the empire and whatever is doing because it's a massive distraction. But unfortunately, you know, I may not care about politics, but it cares about me. And I, I it kind of made me realize, you know, that this stuff is, is actually really affecting me. And that's kind of why I got into it. But 
other people, they don't seem to realize that. We call them normies. We call them just normal people, whatever. But in order for us, I think, to move forward, and I think this is kind of where I'd like to go with the next part of this interview, is what should our goals be? And in order to kind of implied with like, you know, waking people up is like, well, we need some of them to like be on our side because we're kind of in a minority, I, I would I would argue. And we're growing, I would say, but also, you know, we, we strengthen numbers. And so what is that number that we need? How do people figure it out? I mean, you live in Baltimore, like that obviously you're going to notice things, but other people, if you go to uh, Utah uh, or if you go to New Hampshire, they don't understand these things because they don't live around diversity. So what what are those tipping points? Like, what does that do for us? And, you know, is that accelerationism and is it going to be too late kind of thing? Like, how do you, how do you plot that out? Like, what, what should we strive for in terms of waking people up? Yeah. I mean, my, uh, my argument all the time is, and I've said this, you know, I, 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 some of the alt-right guys used to get a little vexed with me a few years ago. And as you you can't get ahead of your skis, you know, you got to be, you have to recognize where you are and, you know, in our thing, I think even the best people in this thing who really serious thinkers and all that stuff, they're changing their minds. They're evolving. They're, they're starting to, they're just, they're still figuring it out. You know, I, 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 for example, um, you know, Jerry Taylor, great, great example, you know, 30 years ago or 25 years ago, you know, he was saying, you know, about being pro white and, and have white interest and those kinds of things. And you talk to him and he'll tell you that many of the things he'll look back at some of the things he said 25 years ago and think how naive he was and how, how kind of thoughtless he was, you know? So here's a guy who really was red pilled long before anybody else. And, and he'll admit that he's evolved a lot. And, um, you know, I've gotten to know Greg Johnson very well. He talks about that a lot has, he's just evolved into something different than he was 15, 20 years ago. And all of us have, I mean, I, I have, I've written about this. And I, I think we need to appreciate that is that, you know, where we are on the journey is different than where Normie is on the journey. But, you know, recognize that Normie's on the journey. They are happening. And and you can look around and you, know, you got to white pill yourself every once in a while. You know, I have a friend that 10 years ago, he would have, his tongue would have fell out of his ha- mouth before he mentioned anything to do with race. Now he regularly mocks the idea of putting, you know, the, the beer commercial that has the Chinese guy, the black guy, the white guy, and the one mystery meat guy. <laughs> you know, that's, that's like this thing that they do. Or yeah, the race I call mixing. that the T-Mobile commercial, but I'm sure like, you know, they've all got it from the same advertising company now. And so they're all playing the same script. No question. Yeah, and, and he'll mock this stuff without even thinking about it. And I think, and you know what, that guy, he's making the trip. You know, mm-hmm. it's, he's much slower. He's behind me. And uh, I have another friend. I used to call him on the podcast. I used to call him Mr. Pink, and <laughs> because I don't know why, he's, he's a good friend. And but I, I would, uh, but I, you know, I, I said, you know, he was a a, a Ben Shapiro fan, and uh, we were driving up, up in New England uh, through uh, uh, Ipswich to visit another friend. And I said, you know, he's not on your side. He's like, I just I can't quit on on this. I I got I'm I'm going to stay a conservative, a normicon. He's not an Oricon anymore. He completely abandoned ship. He regularly makes fun of people like Ben Shapiro as you know uh, as, as gatekeepers. So a lot of these people are making making the trip. What do you think in that particular case uh, did it for him? Uh, just as a learning experience for others, in case we want to like red pill someone. It's because he started listening to my podcast, and he's a friend, and he's like, you know hmm. what, my friend is is reasonable, right. and these things he's saying are reasonable. And then he brings in another friend and says, hey, listen to this. Does it sound reasonable? And they're like, yeah, this all sounds reasonable. <laughs> what, 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 why are we why are we, we are opposing something that sounds so obvious to us? And it's that friendship 
you, you turn one friend at a time, you turn one family member. At a time. You can't save everybody. You know, there are people, you know, I always talk about my office manager who is a, a, a Bolshevik. I mean, and I actually, that's really too nice. She's just crazier than that. <laughs> There's no hope. You know, I mean, if, if the revolution happens tomorrow, she ain't gonna make it. And I just, <laughs> that's just the way it is. And, uh, but you can, you know, you convert who you can convert. If we can get 20% of white people and we're probably, we're probably about 6% of white people in America are, are, are realistic about what's happening. They're aware of the demographics. They're aware of what's going on. Uh, they're younger for sure. Uh, we have an, probably another six or 7% that are starting to figure it out. Mm -hmm. uh, but you know, we get 20% of white people. Well, that's probably enough. You know, uh, you know, it's it. Twenty percent is always a critical number. Because that, what happens is that is it drags other people over. Those people, you know, there's always that bigger group that just right. kind of goes where they think you know you're supposed to go. Well, what what is the goal? Let's say we've got twenty percent. What is the goal? I mean, are we looking to break the country up? Or are we trying to basically just get uh, civil rights for white people? Like, what, what what would you say is the goal for that collection of people? Well, I I think you know, in a country like America, there's First of all, we ha we have to come to terms with the fact that we are a global empire, mm -hmm. and we're we're going to need a little luck uh, because global empires that break up quickly tend to end in warfare. So mm -hmm. we're going to need a little luck. That's why I'm kind of in um, I'm kind of a pro Trump guy. He's normalizing the slow withdrawal from global empire. I see, and that would be a good thing. You know, if we that the if the ruling class starts looking at it and saying, well we got to pull our horns in a little bit because it's on, it's destabilizing things. That would be a good thing. Cause I mean, I don't, I don't want to die in a nuclear exchange. I mean, I, I, I would much, yeah, yeah. yeah, much rather a much peaceful way. Well, especially where you live. That's probably high on the, high on the target list. Yeah. But, uh, but the fact is though, I think ultimately what we're going to, to have to get back to is a regionalization of America where it, much like say how Yugoslavia operated. Mm. And that is, you know, you, you, you know, the new England, is going to be culturally different than the Mid-Atlantic and Deep South. Uh, I think we're going to have to, uh, whites in general are going to have to have a strong ethnic identity. And, and we're probably going to have to, at some point, start to do some really tough things. And that is driving some people out. I mean, I, I don't think there's any way around it. Or at least carving out areas for ourselves that are exclusively for so us. So right now, that's illegal. I mean, effectively, it yeah. is because of yeah. the civil rights bill and you can't discriminate, we're fair housing, blah, blah, blah. And so they've, they've the federal government, through basically the powers that be and, and the usual suspects, have basically legislated this stuff into the game plan for everyone in the country uh, and increasingly around the world. And so the, the federal government, and you know, we call it ZOG, whatever you want to say, is basically going against us doing that. So how do we change that effectively? Even if we have mentally, like we, we agree, do we have to do it through legislation? Do we have to do it basically through a state level, basically saying, hey, look, we don't recognize this law that there have been, Hank, you can probably jump in on this if, if you have any examples that come to mind, but there have been states that basically just say, we don't recognize, like California is trying to do this constantly with, with Trump. I mean, they're, they're basically saying, we don't, we don't agree, you know, we're, we're not going to uh, acknowledge the federal law here. I mean, is that something we could do? Or how do you see the strategy evolving? Like, what do we do? Uh, if, assuming that's the goal we have is we want to make these tough decisions and exclude people, I, I think is what you're saying. Well, I, I think, you know, we're going to need a, a great destabilizer. Some, economics probably. Yeah, I agree where, with where that. To go. Mm -hmm. And, it, you know, the country is probably ungovernable right now. We just don't notice it. 
And I mean, there's, I know of places and I, my travels that are essentially outside of civilization, right? You know, the cops don't even go there. So, you know, we, we, we're probably a lot less governable than we realize it's why all the panic goes on. But, you know, an economic crisis to give, you know, a strong hand, the opportunity to say, Hey, we, we, we're going to have to impose reforms. We're going to force things through. I mean, look, this, this is exactly what happened with the great depression. Yeah, the, at the federal the, level is what you're saying? Well, you know, and that's what would have to be is at the at the federal level, you would see forces say, we're going to start to overturn some of these things in, in order because we have no choice. We right. have, we, we're going to have to do this. We're going to devolve things back to, to local areas. Because right. here's the thing that you can hear. If you listen to, left, to the left, you know, after the 2016 election, what were they talking about? They were talking about secession. Yeah. You know, all throughout New England, oh, we're, 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 we're going to separate off, you know. People can change quickly on a dime, and and I think you know at some point, I, I know the way I look at it is that the the current system will no longer be profitable for the people in it to the point where they want to keep investing in it. And that's what happened that's in stuck, Russia. That's what happened yeah. in Russia. I don't know how that works here because the problem in America is that the globalist business class wants to keep, as Steve Saylor says, more people coming in so they can sell more toilet paper and they want more cheap labor. I don't see the, their incentives being a breakup or, or decentralization of power. That that's my sort of concern. But well, yeah. But I I point out too is that we've got you now a couple million young men who you know military service. Mm -hmm. You got. I think you know. I, I, I my sense is is that most likely we'll see violence. Um, you know because that's just what happens. Mm. And you know when the when the bombs went off in Wall Street. Everyone got religion about uh, immigration of certain kinds of people. All of a sudden, you know, these uh, swarthy guys who mm. uh, were highly numerate <laughs> were no longer a good idea to be bringing in. And, uh, you know, that th those bombings in the 100 years ago shook the ruling class. I mean, it really panicked them. And so, it, and they weren't really big. I mean, you read about these, these exploits, they're nothing, you know. I mean, just, but just look at what... Um, you know, we've spent what four you, trillion dollars uh, after nine eleven, something like that. So, um, so I, I think what probably what's going to happen is you're going to get economic unrest, then you're going to get social unrest. You'll mm -hmm. get lots of people showing up at the mall, and at some point, the people who are in charge, or some element of people in charge, are simply going to say, "You know what? This this is, can't work. This is we're, just, we're in danger of of being overwhelmed by the problems, and we're going to push through some hard reforms." And, and look, it could go horribly awful, but if, if you want to be optimistic that those hard reforms would be a sort of a devolution of power to say, hey, you know, we can't have this, this thing in our lap. We're going to have to send it back to the locals and let them figure it out. Hmm. I mean, that's, a, that's the optimistic version. The pessimistic mm -hmm. version is, well, <laughs> you, you start ending up, you know, it, it, I mean, think about um, when that, uh, the black guy started shooting cops down in, in uh, Houston. Mm-hmm. I guarantee you there's a lot of people thought, okay, maybe this is it. Maybe this is what's, maybe this is where we tip over. And, uh, you know, um, I, I, and I think that we probably were a lot closer to tipping over than you realize. Cause think about how many nut job white guys are probably kicking around thinking, Hey, <laughs> open season. Oh, um, sure. Yeah. I mean, I think one of the underexplored aspects of, uh, that dynamic people, People way underestimate how vulnerable uh, any given institution or society or group is, and they way overestimate the 
extent to which that vulnerability actually translates into instability. Like, in other words, it's extremely easy for you to get these uh, sort of tipping points where, uh, you know, the uh, the famous uh, song, here is something you can't understand, how I could just kill a man. It's like, it turns out that you can just go and just shoot a random crack dealer on a street corner and nobody will ever find out who did it. And as soon as everybody kind of realizes that all at once, things go to shit. But that doesn't result in any sort of macro scale destabilization of the underlying power structure that doesn't result in anybody uh, uh, sort of fundamentally changing the ways in which that area is governed. And I mean, it might seem kind of like a picky thing, like nobody actually cares if your neighbor corner hut or your corner neighborhood uh, drug dealer gets shot. But this extrapolates upwards to pretty significant levels of violence. Like you can have well-functioning civil servants in places like, uh, I don't know, Cultural Revolution China, where you still have massive amounts of carnage and chaos and bloodshed and destruction, and yet you still have the army as a functional institution. It's working. People are starving, uh, but, uh, you know, there's not any sort of attempt to overthrow the regime. And all these things are, you know, really highly culturally specific, something that didn't lead to revolution in China, might in Germany, who knows. But it's really easy for people to kind of uh, take this underpants gnome philosophy where first everything goes to shit, and then, like, question, 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 uh, revolution and ethno state or full communism or whatever your objective is. Well, I, if I could sort of add some color to maybe the middle question mark phase of the uh, underpants no meme in the case of America, I, I, I always look to Russia and what happened there because I, I don't see, you know, our society following the path of the, the first civil war where people were basically, you know, picking aside or another side. America is too complicated today. And so I think what would be more likely is, as Z-Man is describing, you have a economic crisis, an illegitimacy crisis, or a legitimacy crisis, however it's phrased, about the government. We're already seeing this on many levels, but I think more of it would happen, especially if the, the money ran out, whereby people don't really trust the government to do anything for you. And so what you end up having having is local, regional I'm not going to call him a warlord, but you can call him an oligarch or somebody who has a business or something that is actually functioning and, and giving people a reason to follow him. He's going to get, then start forming his own group. And that's what happened in Russia when in the 90s when Yeltsin, the very weak central government at that point, was being infiltrated and taken over by the regional powers, which are basically guys who carved up the, the the richest portions of the Russian economy, whether it was in metals, mining, uh, oil, those guys basically ran the show. And I think you would have more of that happening here, uh, where people who do have control over resources would start effectively running things. And I would like to see it happen on a more regional basis where at least the little guy would have some say in things. But realistically, what happened in Russia was it was gangsterism because the, the state had, had sort of dropped away and the economy had dropped away. And so people were desperate. They were stealing from each other. 
And who knows what would happen in America? I mean, the culture is a little bit different. Uh, and it depends on the region, obviously. But I would say that would definitely weaken the central uh, government. Uh, and I, I would see basically a lot of the oligarchs sort of rising up to kind of effectively take uh, de facto, if not de jure, power in, in that format. Well, there's a couple things to keep in mind. Throughout, I got three things came to mind as you guys were talking. Is that one, you know, the order is maintained by the habituation of rules that maintain people in their place. You know, yeah, that's why you have to think of it. Is that, hey, this is my my role in society. Here are the ways in which I need to conduct myself, and I do it without really thinking about it too much. And everybody does that. You know, you just get used to it. You know, you go into any public area and people naturally line up when they notice that there's some entry point. <laughs> and we, we all do these things. These are these, these kind of you know, baked into our mind rules. But at some point, something disrupts it. And if you've ever been in a place where all of a sudden all hell breaks out, that's what happens. Something, you know, it's this, it's this little tiny grain of sand in the gears. And all of a sudden, those habits suddenly don't seem to make any sense. And now everyone's this, you know, a robot that has completely lost control. And and that can happen to a society rather quickly. And we've seen this. I mean, there's lots of examples of it. But the other thing that's important, though, I think, for us to keep in mind is that I'm not a guy and I don't know anybody who can see the future. We can kind of imagine a various scenarios in which the wheels come off the cart but the one thing that the lesson of history is, is that no one has, was ever, ever able to see that the wheels were going to come off the cart. And if, cause if they did, they were prepared for it. And the lesson of history is nobody's ever prepared for that happening. So we're not going to be prepared for that. Let's, let's not trouble our minds so much with coming up with, Hey, this is going to be our, uh, political order after the revolution, or this is how we're going to fight. Let's not worry about that too much. We're, the only way we'll see ourselves as, as a people through whatever comes next, whether it's just a really unpleasant stretch or whether it's a really, really unpleasant stretch, is if we have a, an identity on which we can rally around and say, hey, we, we have to sacrifice ourselves individually, our collective, you know, to this collective whole in order to protect our interests. And we'll get through it. We'll figure it out. You know, trust ourselves to bugger through the problem. But in order to be able to do that, we have to have as many of us as possible who have come to the agreement that, yes, our interests lie in each other. And if, and if we can keep selling that message to people, because, you know, the, the, the other benefit of this is, is that we live in this highly deracinated society. You, it, I don't know if you guys have ever been to any uh, dissident events. Yeah. But if yeah, you haven't, we, we all have, yeah. uh, you, you go to these things, you go to American Renaissance or whatever, the, 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 the smiles on people. You, I mean, you need a crowbar to get them off. They're so happy to be around people like them. Mm-hmm. And it's just this wonderful experience, even, even small get togethers, people, it's that fellowship. And, you know, that's what we can offer in dissident politics that, that the establishment can't, they're offering a transactional relationship. Hey, come be a conservative or a libertarian and you get a t-shirt and, uh, Oh, and, and you get to, you know, uh, send me money. <laughs> you get to pose in front of the Charlie Kirk cardboard yeah. cutout at yeah. CPAC. And, and we're not offering that. We're, what we're offering is a fellowship and, and we're not offering a, a solution to the problems of the world. Mm-hmm. We're offering an opportunity to be part of the solution. And, and you know, look, I'm, I'm 53 years old. I'm not going to probably live to see the great turning. <laughs> I'm not. You know, that's just the reality of it. But, uh, you know, there's young guys out there who I can help, you know, get them with, uh, you know, organized and are doing things or thinking the right way or reading the right books or whatever who 
you know, long after I'm in the ground being eaten by worms, they'll say, you know, <laughs> that was that guy. And he really helped us, you know, get prepared for what's coming next. And, you know, that that's mm-hmm. the best you can do sometimes, you know, and, and that's what we have to do. But the third thing, though, and what you guys are talking about is that, is that the, the, you know, this unraveling that can happen rather quickly is that if you think about, you know, you said you mentioned the gangsterism in, in uh, Russia, is that sometimes we have a, a bias that we don't even notice. And that is we live in a gangster age now. No, that's Seth true. Rich was executed yeah. on the streets. Yeah. We know it was a political execution. There's no question about it. People have people who are sympathetic to the Democratic Party have analyzed this. There's a I think it was I forget the college that looked into it. Said that there's only two possible uh, explanations: one, an undiscovered serial killer that who's only killed once, and an execution. Hmm. That's the kind of stuff we have going on. We have people being executed for for political reasons. You see, we're we're seeing uh, Jeffrey that, Epstein. Yeah, I mean Ju- Julian Assange. Soon enough. Yeah, 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 exactly. And I mean, look at uh, what's going on with uh, Trump and the CIA. I mean, they're openly, mm-hmm. we have the security, uh, the, the intelligence community is actively organizing to overthrow the president. And, and you know, this, this has become normalized. Uh, you know, Washington's operating like a pirate ship. That, right that's now. because they didn't they didn't select him this time. I mean, that that this has been a thing ever since. I mean, Truman basically regretted forming the CIA. Yeah. He said it was a second government, um, and it's you know, if you look at uh, you mentioned Seth Rich. I mean, that was the Clinton operation more likely than not, and it goes back to their shenanigans back in the eighties. Even who's you know, Clinton was working with with Bush, and Vince Foster was sort of the thing in the nineties. You're right. No, it's been happening. Yeah. That's absolutely true. It's absolutely well, true. Well, and, and with the intelligence guys, this is something I wrote about, is that I, when I, I lived in Boston for a while, and I got to know some guys from um, that were Israeli intelligence, basically. They, um, uh, how much can I reveal? Well, anyway, that's what they were. And they, um, uh, and, and I, I, they were good guys. I, I liked them. And they, they were actually somewhat, I think, upfront about the fact that, um, you know, the Israelis are weird about these things. If you work for say El Al or you work for, uh, the, uh, the IDF, uh, if you're, you know, uh, a civilian contractor with them, they they know they're not kidding anybody. You know, they, you know, they, they work for the, you know, they work for the government. And, uh, but anyway, I hadn't seen this guy in a while when I was down in Washington for the conference for uh, Hazani's conference, all of a sudden I see this guy across the room he comes walking over. And I thought, you know, it's a small world, but that's how, that's why they call it an intelligence community because they're Mm -hmm. all in the community together. Mm -hmm. You know, these guys all know each other. My little thing popped up. Somebody uh, said they got a question. I have a question. Yeah. Regarding, um, sort of the economic unraveling of the United States. And if you see any real outcome that is favorable towards maybe certain regions, certain regions of the United States are doing very well economically right now, but most of the country is sort of lagging behind and you can see with a lot of the hemming and hawing over the trade war in much of the the midwest it doesn't seem as if there's a sustainable economic engine in much of the kind of important regions of the country anymore they're deeply dependent on foreign trade to kind of sustain what little lifestyle they have so do you well, see at, at any point uh, a time when we can at least maybe reform our economic system if there can be sort of a new national strategy or do you think that the the selectorate as as hank called them will just continue to sort of pick and choose what exactly they want to support through various um you know pricing mechanisms and various subsidies and international trade deals for political reasons well 
you know, it, it, the regions of the country that will do the best are the, those that have the combination of youth and intelligence. You know, New England is the smartest region in the country, but it's really old. You go into New England, it's it's amazing how old it is. Mm-hmm. Oh, and, yeah. I mean, uh, I, I was in Connecticut um, a few months ago, and I was shocked. I, mean, yeah. I, I did not see anyone under the age of, of 40. It, I, I, can't, saw, I can't afford it. Yeah, it's too yeah, expensive. I mean, I, I saw like maybe two teenagers in, in like a week, in a week and a half period I was there. I saw, I'm not getting two teenagers. And I don't even know if they were from there. They might have been tourists or they might have been, you know, the family or, you know, family of someone who worked in New York City. But yeah. it didn't really seem like anyone in Connecticut was sort of young and had a career and was trying to do something there. Oh, yeah. I mean, you can look at this. It's interesting. You know, I mean, you know, yeah, I have weird hobbies, but the, dem- the demographics of it, uh, that it's been 20 years since someone from Maine got a Division A football scholarship. <laughs> mm. um, New Hampshire is another one. I think it's been like 10 years. Um, Vermont, it, it goes before far back. Nobody remembers. Um, you know, they, they produce some hockey players uh, for sure. But, um, you know, that, because that's a, a, a white sport and that's mm-hmm. the whitest part of the country. But uh, you know, you can look at these things and it, you know, it's, it's, it's boomerland. It's old. And a lot of it has to do with in the eighties. I lived in, in uh, Boston in the eighties. It, it hyper gentrified. It was really amazing how fast it happened. And it was, it was deliberate. They changed their tax laws. They changed how their property was structured. And, uh, you know, it, it chased the, it chased the hues away. You know I mean? That's really what happened. You know, the, the black population was essentially deported. Um, <laughs> I mean, it, you know, there, there were parts of Mattapan that were really hard thumping, dangerous neighborhoods like Baltimore. They don't exist anymore. And they, they, and they were, were, you know, wiped out. But, but, but getting back to the, the question though, is that I think that the real issue of economics is this, no one really understands what can go wrong with a credit-based economy. We are in uncharted territory. You know, you know, the, the normal models of, you know, we're going to take this fixed value, gold, silver, whatever. That's the way societies based their money on for, I don't know, what, 3,000 years, something like that. Mm-hmm. And, you know, and then you have this fiat currency, which bases it on the good faith and, and judgment, essentially, of the ruling class of the issuing country. Mm-hmm. Right? That's fine. We had, we've had, um, in the free money era, we had banks. They said, hey, we're going to issue money, and this value of the money is based on how, tr- how much you trust the people issuing the money. Those are things we can wrap our mind around. Most people, even really smart people, really don't understand the credit economy, how it works. Even Warren Buffett, and this was even before the housing crisis, called derivatives weapons of financial mass destruction. Even smart people, you know, can't yeah. really put their brains around it. Yeah, there's a great, uh, there's a guy named James Rickards who does a good job explaining about how a credit economy works. But, but basically, what people don't, we what we don't know. You know, we understand cyclicality and hard money. We understand what can happen with fiat currency. We, we get all those things. But no one understands when th- when things start to go haywire in a credit economy. Because, you know, we, we have a, um, excuse me a second. I had to hit the cough button. Um, you know, we have our government, I mean, the world economy has an insatiable appetite for U.S. treasuries. And the, the reason is, is that that's money. <laughs> that's literally money. You know, they, they, they take that treasury and that becomes 
Well, it's it's even it's even in the the banking standards. I mean, like Basel to like they basically describe U.S. Treasury debt as a risk-free asset, which is obviously you know insane. But it's it's all relative and it's also extremely liquid. So there are some things that the U.S. government and the the, the monetary base has in this country that no other country can compete with because of its size, because of its sort of legacy. Um, you know, you could say, you know, Germany is a better run economy, but it's just too small. And they're part of the Eurozone now, which has a lot of problems from the periphery countries. And so the U.S. dollar has still, astonishingly, and this is why they, they keep getting away with all the quantitative easing, uh, it still has this ability to be described literally as risk-free in these these models. And that was uh, something that actually got criticized uh, after the financial crisis. But I think to this day, it's it's still pretty much true. It's it's like U.S. debt is is the thing. Yeah, and, and it's, it's the thing that you look at is that if you look at global debt, private and, and uh, sovereign debt, well, it, it equals, it actually is more than the appraised value of everything. Now, obviously, that's you know, how much is yeah, uh, I, I you know, saw a world and, debt clock at like $268 trillion, whatever the yeah. hell that number is. I mean, I can't put my mind around it, but yeah. And it, and it, and it, it could very well be one of these kinds of things that, you know, it's it's so complicated that you know, if if you do system, one of the, what I do for a living is system analysis, and there are times when you run into a system that becomes so complex that the participants can no longer anticipate what's going to happen from inputs, and that's a strange tipping point that happens because it, again, it's that everyone trusts, everyone's participating in this system, and I'm not talking about software necessarily, although that could be a part of it, but in a system, they say, well, if I do X, I get Y. And if they don't get why, then maybe then they know that there's some explanation for it, you know, and they can work through it. But when they start getting what appears to be random results, immediately everybody loses faith in the system. And immediately people start doing other stuff. And you see system collapse can happen instantly. And this is what could happen in our financial system when all of a sudden the federal government says, we have this problem and we're going to take – short-term debt out of the market to try and address it and something completely different happens as a result. And, and, and all of a sudden everybody's looking at this and going, wait a second, the, the, the geniuses in the room no longer know how the system works. You know, Frankenstein is now smashing stuff up and he's just going crazy. And we haven't really hit there yet. We got close with the, uh, the mortgage meltdown, but that was a pretty easy one. That was an old fashioned problem really. You know, it really was. I mean, there, it wasn't a, a symptom of the credit economy. It was just magnified by the credit economy. I, and, I really you know, a lot of people in the run-up to that were clearly pointing out for years that this was a real risk, and they had there was plenty of papers that were handed out at various conferences, even Davos. Um, uh, I think two years prior to the crisis really hitting, most there were there were plenty of serious financial economists who had basically worked out that this was going to happen in this exact way in retrospect right. that was very clear but at the yeah. time i don't think yeah. it was that obvious to most people so. but what's i think what you're getting at is that the solution to that problem has probably created this system that you're talking about the solution to that problem has put us in uncharted territory we're basically instead of addressing fundamental uh, conceits of the american economy and the world economy mm -hmm. the the solution became quantitative easing it became uh, I would say an overextension of marketing apparatuses to spurn uh, really useless consumer spending um, and an explosion. And it, yeah, and, and uh, well, not just that. I mean, just the, the content consumption marketing gimmick has 
hit levels that I, I don't think anyone's ever seen before. People are marketed to in so many ways so consistently. Well, um, the donor class would lose money if they actually tried uh, yeah, to reform and, and things, so and that's why it won't happen. My, my point is that I, I think that we've created the system that is, uh, you know, they can't really be fully understood now because we've introduced so much credit into the world and there's so many bonds floating around for pretty much every sovereign government now who basically tried to finance their way out of the crisis in a temporary fashion, I think, to you know stave off financial ruin and, and serious uh, calamity. So now, you know, you ever, if you ever look at the bond market, there's just trillions in dollars in bonds and you really wonder if any of these governments, if they if they had to, could finance them, could properly actually pay out the value of these bonds. And there's really no no one really will say, well, yeah, it's it's totally feasible. There's well, that's, no government- that, we, we seem to be in this weird spiral with interest rates. Yeah, it, it's generally been understood that uh, retail, like say mortgage rates, seven percent is probably where things should be, right? Um, maybe a little higher. And you know, given debt ratios and payment uh, conjunct, you know, depending upon how the banking system is set up. Well, they're 4% or whatever it is now. And, uh, and, and no one can think any effort to try and lift interest rates at all, whether, you know, it's, it's at, uh, you know, overnight rates or whether it's trying to, you know, cool down the, the market by pushing up interest rates. No one can figure out how to raise the rates again. Well, I and think Switzerland course, was paying negative rates uh, a few <laughs> years back. Well, and that's, that's the other Several thing. countries are now. Is if the U.S. government went, if, if all of a sudden they had to start borrowing at historic uh, averages, they'd be bankrupt in a month. I mean, they, they, the debt payments would gobble up the, the budget. And it, it, so, you know, there's these weird traps. Now, look, there's a lot of smart guys with a precious metal in their name who are running the finan- world financial system. Maybe they've got it all under control. And, and it's just my hunch is, and this is really all it is, is that the system has become so complicated that no one really knows how all these parts are interacting with one another. I mean, we're doing weird things like, um, it, it hasn't happened yet, but it, you know, it hasn't happened with student debt, although there's a little bit of it, but we're, we're bundling car loans you know, we have subprime car loans and we're bundling those up and doing the same thing we did with mortgage loans. Now, I mean, which, I mean it, it's like doing it with boats. I mean, the, 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 you know, the, it's, it's, it's insane what they're doing, but, and they started doing a little bit of this with student debt. It started starting to creep in, and you know it's almost. I would not it's, it's buy those on for for three cents on the dollar. I no no the the earning potential of a college graduate today is uh, well, you know, do you want fries with that? I mean, it, it, it's it's horrible. I don't know how you know you restructure that stuff and make a profit, but I guess people buy shit. So who knows? Sorry. Well, and you wonder though is if it, there isn't a a thing that. You know, they they got hooked on velocity. They need the money moving through the system faster and faster because that uh, uh, enables the skim. I mean, look, you get rich in in this country not because you build a better mousetrap. Is that you find some bottleneck that you can exploit and skim a little bit off while people aren't (laughs) noticing. I mean, it really is how it is. And, I mean, Peter Thiel wrote a book on this. Uh, Oh, it's a one, yeah. 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 And, yeah. But it is – that's why – Silicon Valley is so covetous of these quasi monopolies as have this oligopoly they have. But 
But in order to make that work, you know, it, it's the old um, three-card Monty. You know, the more, faster you move the cards, the easier it is to take the mark. And mm-hmm. I think maybe that's, you know, part of what's happening is that oh, you got to sure. keep moving money through the system. Well, you know, faster, uh, faster, if faster. we could talk about Trump a little bit, I think he's actually part of that because, and, and he himself is not even being manipulated because he knows his own wealth is tied into the financial system. I mean, he's, he's a real estate owner. And, you know, if New York uh, or if there was a sort of, uh, real estate crisis. I mean, it happened to him in the 90s. Uh, and during his campaign, he kept claiming he never went bankrupt. I don't know how he actually said that with a straight face. Uh, he went bankrupt multiple times. I mean, he could probably argue it was his companies, but you know, he wants the the, the asset bubble to continue. And the people that put him there or support him now, at least, uh, like one of the questions I had when he got into power was like, okay, if if the, the money people hate him so much, why don't they just tank the stock market and get him out? But that hasn't happened. And so my, my assumption is that they essentially see him as a guy who's going to keep you know interest rates low, try to boost the economy as long as possible uh, versus I don't know who else would be in there, but I don't see anybody else actually placating the business class as well as he can right now. And so I don't know if you're your theories about sort of the president's involvement in the, in the White House's role in, in this whole scheme. But I think Trump is a good example of how he uh, he is a basic part of the Wall Street uh, establishment. And I think that's, I mean, if you look at what happened with Obama, I mean, he kind of ran on this whole, like, we're going to reform uh, the economy and, and give, you know, fairness back to people, hope and change. He didn't really do anything. And he, he had a bunch of uh, Wall Street people in his cabinet and he ended well, it got up, leaked that Citibank literally chose his cabinet for him. I mean that that was that was leaked out. Uh, I think towards the end of his presidency, there were all these internal memos showing that he had several lobbyists. Surprised it wasn't C- Goldman Sachs, but from uh, Citibank that basically handpicked uh, or, or were giving him suggestions for multiple for different cabinet members, and several of them ended up getting the job in mm-hmm. his early administration. Yeah, it, it was you know he had like ties to. Um, what was that guy at WorldCom and, and some of these other like jokers in, in the New York and New Jersey financial scene? They, they you know, basically. Corzine? I don't know. I can't. Yeah, John Corzine. I think that him. Like there, there were several people that were involved in the early Obama presidency, yeah. if you want to call it that, that were very much rooted in the financial sector. And someone pointed out early on, like, well, this kind of ran out a very different message. And. He ran. He talked about unifying the American economy, but there's literally no one from heavy industry. There's no one from the automakers. No, there's never no one from labor. <laughs> there's no no one from any other sector uh, outside of maybe tech really made an appearance in the Obama administration uh, at all. It was all financial guys. Yeah, it was, it was all a, Wall Street. I think it was. I forget his first name. Cone. Uh, he was a uh, Goldman oh, Sachs yeah. guy. And he, he was in the Trump administration for a while there, and he was alleged to have actually gone into the Oval Office and taken off the desk some kind of like NAFTA, uh, anti-NAFTA legislation that an aide had put there in front of Trump. I mean, he hated this stuff so much coming from the financial class. He he wants free trade, doesn't want to support manufacturing, et cetera. So I, I don't know if, Z-Man, you can talk about how you know the, the financial elite has basically swallowed up the white house but i guess that was kind of my question yeah you know that goes back to how washington works it's it's been financialized a long time ago you know the old paleocons actually they they saw this coming in the 70s and you know if you look at the manufacturing base was basically just auctioned off and Mm -hmm. you know they they auctioned off to you know china and 
uh, well, first it was uh, you know, Japan, but you know, Asia, you know, low, low labor countries. It was all about getting around you know, various uh, labor and tax laws and that kind of thing. Right. But uh, you know what they figured out is that, and is one of those things that you know in the olden times you you, you got uh, wealthy and you became an important man in your community, and then you went to Washington to protect your local interests. You know that's really what, what how it worked. Mm. And that doesn't rich people don't serve, want to serve in Congress unless there's some sort of loon. They they hire somebody, mm-hmm. and, and that's what every congressman and senator is. They're they're hired for right. that job. Right. And uh, you know so and, and and look, it's a good life. I mean, Paul Ryan, he went to Washington penniless. He left with a net worth of something like six million dollars. He's now making a seven figure sum, in, uh, in some sort of uh, a banking role. Once his year is up, and it may already be up, he'll be in Washington. Uh, you know. Uh, as a bag man, you know, passing money around. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, Boner, um, uh, the guy who cried all the time, he's now selling weed. I mean, yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <Sorry>. <laughs> I mean, it's 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 crazy. I mean, but it, look, it's a great look. You've, the the best way to get rich in America is to win a a, a, a national office, you know, a congressman or senator, because it's, you if you make it a couple of terms as a congressman, one term as a senator, you're you're golden. You're taken care of, and um, so you know. But I think you know with Trump. I have a really, I think, a, a, an unorthodox view on Trump. I always have. He, he's, I, I started calling him the mule from the Asimov novels. He's just a wrecker. And and it's because he's not a reformer. He, well, mm-hmm. he wants to be a reformer. He's just lousy at being a reformer. <laughs> and, you know, Reagan was a really good reformer. He, he really understood and appreciated people who did understand how Washington worked, how, how the systems worked that he was trying to reform. Yeah. And so we didn't get as much done under Reagan as we, as people who voted for him were hoping for, because he compromised all over the place. He was happy. He wanted. He was a defender of the system, mm-hmm. despite all his rhetoric. Trump, on the other hand, he's a Boy Scout sort of guy who thinks he can remedy stuff, and he just keeps screwing things up and breaking things. And that's great. I am happy with that. The more he busts up, the better. And and uh, you know, any deal that Trump does is going to be a bad deal. So no deals. That's the best deal. Mm-hmm. But the, the thing with Trump, though, is you, he, you know, his, he, I don't think he's as tied into Wall Street in that he, he was always sort of a wart on, on Wall Street. And that is he, he did business with bankers and they would get their beaks wet on his deals. And but what Trump really brought to them is a sucker. And Trump, that's how Trump made his money. You know, there's always that, you know, it's that old joke that there's three people in a room. One of them is going to be the guy who's the sucker. And if you don't know who it is, it's you. Well, Trump and the bankers, they always knew who the mark was. And if you look at all his deals, most of the time, his contribution to it was organizing it and lending his name to it. Yeah, Brandon. He had, he had no risk. You know, he, so the, the casino went out of business. Oh, who cares? He didn't have any risk there. Mm-hmm. He had walked away with his cash beforehand. And, and that's really how he operated. But I think, you know, the, uh, the, I think he was shrewd enough. I think, I always think that the wall street guys, the bankers were always a little nervous about a guy like that. You know, that, you know, because again, they they may find themselves in the room and they're the sucker, and, and it's happened a few times. He's swindled some ba- bankers in his life, so uh, I, you know, he, I, I don't I don't think, you know, I I, I think he's more of a, he's very conventional. I mean, I think in his politics, he, he, the weird thing about Trump, if you listen to his rhetoric, he sounds like um, sort of a crude uh, WWE version of Reagan. You know, he 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 wants to kind of like redo a lot yeah. of this stuff. You know, it's kind of a blue dog Democrat. You know, kind of working class almost. 
Yeah, I mean, he's he's just he's just a crude guy, you know. I mean, look, if you uh, see pictures of his uh, suite at Trump Tower, you know, he's got his gold plate oh, all over. It's ridiculous. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I'm a plain guy. I don't I don't like any of that stuff, and that is just so ridiculously gaudy and ugly you know yeah like my god this is this is it's like some uh some uh, redneck hit the lottery you know and he's gonna have a gold-plated <laughs> toilet you know napoleon's office is more modest <laughs> versailles yeah, the, only, is, uh, the only thing he doesn't have is like the little midget uh, the tiny uh, uh giraffe you know i mean that's <laughs> <laughs> yeah he's not michael jackson <laughs> but um but as far as trump goes i mean uh, you know he he sometimes you know, my I, there's no voting our way out of these problems. No, but what we can hope for is people who, who break things and screw things up and and make things worse to some degree. And and you know, I mean, you take what you can get. You know, I always say I'm never too proud to accept half a loaf. You know, and uh, yeah, I would like um, a Pinochet, but you know, I can take his clownish uh, third uh, uh, brother <laughs> who who tries to be Pinochet and just smashes stuff up and causes trouble. Eh, well. That's the best we can do then. What, what what can we do in the time that he's got left? I mean, he's not going to be there forever. That's the other thing. And so let's just assume it goes back to business as usual where the CIA picks our president uh, like uh, many have uh, been placed there before, seemingly at least. What, what, is there anything we can we can plan for while he's still there? And, and how about the aftermath? Yeah, I, I don't know. I mean, that's, um, it's funny. You know, in my life, politics hasn't changed very much. You know, I, I, I came along and I mean, I, my interest in politics actually started with, uh, I was a little kid with, um, with Watergate. I couldn't mm-hmm. figure out what everybody was talking about. Mm-hmm. And, and as I got older, I wound up reading every book on Watergate, uh, all the principles, all their biographies, all that stuff. And, um, and, and so, uh, but one of the things I couldn't help but notice is that, uh, the things that Carter did were mostly just an extension of the stuff that Nixon was doing. Yeah. And Reagan picked up on many of the things that Carter did, deregulation, for example. And there really isn't these big changes from one president to the other. And and I don't really know if we've really had much of a big change with Trump other than a change in tone. People's um, so, perception of the media has probably been the biggest yeah. one. Yeah. I mean, is there credit, a, yeah. Yeah, I mean, the media has been completely discredited, and that, that's not a small thing. That's sure. a big thing. Mm-hmm. And I think the left has sent itself insane. Um, I, I don't, I, I don't think we really quite appreciate just how messed up they are. Uh, you know, if, if fake Indian is the best they can come up with, that's, I mean, it, Mike Dukakis was a more credible presidential candidate than Elizabeth Warren. And, uh, you know, I, I don't think we've, re- we're, we're wait, just wait till she starts getting some scrutiny. She's not very bright. Uh, she lies constantly yeah. and, uh, and her lies are ham handed, you know, stupid lies. And, uh, you know, so I, I, I don't know. I think that that might be to some degree helpful. I, I think really what, what, you know, this whole thing has been good for has been, it makes it, it makes someone like me sound really reasonable. 10 years ago, if yeah. I would have said to people, I'm pro white, they'd say, oh, you're a Nazi. Now I say I'm pro-white, and people go, "Yeah, yeah, that sounds pretty reasonable." <laughs> <So>. <laughs> well, here's a few a uh, few thoughts that I've got from your blog, and and we can uh, we can close on that, or we can uh, finish up with some questions from the other guys. But um, you want to be a respectable face to a skeptical audience. I like that one. You want to explain that real quick? Yeah, you know, you, if you if you dress up as somebody scary, if you start sounding scary, well, no one's going to listen to you. And, and, and inevitably the kinds of things that we talk about, people have been conditioned their whole lives to respond a certain way. And so it's incumbent upon us to 
uh, you know, break their conditioning by being completely different than what they expect. Uh, you know, I, I, this is one of those things I'm a, I think by nature, a pretty reasonable sounding guy, but I, I that's the number one input I, I get back or feedback I get from people is they say, I, you know, I sent you your podcast to my grandmother and she said, Oh, he sounds so reasonable. Mm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, and, and, and that helps. I mean, people, you know, people are not going to join us if we sound like lunatics. And that doesn't mean we, we have to pull our punches or we have to police our ranks or, you know, purge each other or disavow or all that other crap. It just means we have to stop and think and say, what is the most effective way I can present this to people who are probably not in the buying market? You know, think like a salesman, mm-hmm. you know, you know, if you think like a salesman and I don't know if you guys ever done any sales in your life. Yeah, it's hard. Yeah. Yeah. yeah I mean, you, you, you know, you, and if you, when you walk into a, 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 someone, a cold call or whatever, and you're unprepared, it never goes well. But if you walk in and you're prepared, you say, Hey, you know, what? I'm going to put a, my best face forward. Well, guess what? At least you get a, you get to talk to somebody. And, and the other that's thing what, is you take yourself out of the equation. You think about them. What do they want? What are their needs? And if you frame it like that, like this is for your benefit. And you, and you don't have to, you know, do it in a forceful way, but it has to be done in a persuasive way in the sense that they have a clear in their mind incentive for coming on board. And if you're really good, they think it's their idea. That's true salesmanship when you can actually implant your idea in somebody else's head, but you often do it in an effective way by having them visualize something that you have and then them coming to you because you're the best out there for it. So I think for us, I think what we could do better is offering in clear terms, you know, hey, you know, how, wouldn't it be nice to live in a neighborhood where you don't have to worry about your car getting broken into? That, that was my problem, you know, personally, you know, and you can personalize it so you're not trying to talk down to anybody too. But yeah, th- those are techniques that totally work. And I, I hope that, you know, goes, goes more forward as opposed to people getting into arguments and fights all the time, which I think is somewhat counterproductive. Yeah, you know, and I think a lot of guys too. I I think you know they they get, um, you know, freedom is um, it's like when you let your dog off the leash or he gets out in the yard, just goes around around acting mental. And and I think you know a lot of guys when they get off the leash of the conditioning they've had their whole lives, they just run around acting mental. They put start decorating their social media with Hitler motifs and and yeah. and you know and, and dropping you know uh, profanity and uh, epithets all over. Yeah. And, and I think that's another thing we always have to kind of do is try to put our arm around these guys and say, hey, it feels good to breathe the air of freedom, but, you know, you got to keep breathing it. You know, you don't, 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 don't ruin it for yourself, you know. And, um, and, and you know, that's um, especially older guys. Older guys can do that better than younger guys, I think, you know, because younger guys are competitive and stuff like that. It's old guys, you know, we, we can get away with stuff that young guys can't. Mm-hmm. I have one more thing that I liked uh, that you said. And this, this may be something you want to expand on or just leave it at that, but you want to make the cost of occupation prohibitive. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's, you know, that's the, uh, the, the IRA, you know, if, if the other side, the people who are, who are trying to police our language and try and, and, uh, you know, drive us from, uh, you know, the public square. Well, I mean, we're not going to, we're not going to talk them out of it. We just need to make it really, really expensive for them. And, and you do that in a, in a bunch of different ways. I think, you know, like for example, I don't, I've never went back on Twitter. Why would I do that? I, I, I looked at the numbers and said, this, this isn't getting anything from me. There's, I'm not drawing anybody to our side by being on Twitter or Facebook. I, I could use my time instead to build out my own site in a way that's independent. So if people try to deplatform me, it's going to cost them a lot. They're really going to have to work hard to shut me down. 
Well, uh, now guess what? You know, and there were some efforts to do it, but it, it, it was going to cost them too much. So they quit. And, you know, those kind of little things to always say, hey, how can I, you know, make it so that I, I you know, build my defenses, you know, and, and it's just a bunch of little ways in which you do it. But if you go out there, putting your chin out, daring the other guy to, to, to start swinging, well, you're going to get knocked on your ass. And, and that's, that's not smart. It's never going to be a smart thing to do.